Amen. Uh, first and second Peter. <clears throat> Starting with chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners throughout this land. And he gives a list of different places in which these people are living. Um, starts off... Very good to know that, hey, this is Peter that is writing this book. This is the Apostle Peter. Um, I really like Peter. He is just kind of my kind of guy. Uh, if we look a little bit about the story of Peter, we will see that this guy, is, he has tremendous successes, but he also has tremendous failures. I mean, he's constantly putting his foot in his mouth. He's constantly doing something that Jesus is having to fix his problem. As a matter of fact, there's this part in the garden where they go to arrest uh, Jesus. And, and, and he goes out and he pulls out this sword and chops off a dude, dude's ear. And to which Jesus has to be like, Peter, don't do that. And, and he heals the guy's ear. And Peter is the guy that Jesus is coming by. And Peter is, gets out the boat and says, you know, Lord, if that's you, bid me come. Starts walking on the water. Now, after a few steps, he starts to sink. But still... This guy walked on the water. I mean, Peter is an awesome guy. Peter, you know, sometimes he says things that he means well, but he has no idea what he's talking about. Listen, Lord, if everybody else says that, you know, they'll forsake you, not I, not me. I'm Peter. And to which Jesus says, Peter, you know, again, let me correct you. You don't know what you're talking about. Before this night's over, you're going to deny me three different times. So, so I love Peter. I, I love uh, love this guy. You know, this is not in the Bible, but historically, it said that Peter was actually crucified upside down. That Peter was crucified upside down because he said, listen, I'm not even worthy to, be ma- to, to die in the same way that Christ died. Uh, so, so historically, he was, he was crucified upside down. Now, this is, this is someone that he has witnessed the resurrection. This is someone that has been there when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. Jesus was, uh, uh, Peter was there and he's seen all of these miracles that Jesus has done. He, he, man of great success. Man, uh, he has received the harshest rebuke of any disciple. Uh, you know, he's having this conversation with Jesus and then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And to which, at that point, if you're Peter, you're like, wow. I mean, you just, I mean... Imagine that this one, you're having this conversation and Jesus calls you say, wait, isn't this the guy we're fighting against? And then I don't know, just at that moment, but like Peter could take it. Like that was just kind of the person you had to be up front with Peter. There was no like beating around the bush. Oh, I don't quite understand what you mean. No, Peter was up front. He told you what he thought. And, and I like that. I, I could relate to this guy. He's, he's seen great successes, great failures. So I want you just to kind of get to know Peter a little bit and to do that, I want to look back in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, this conversation here, Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus came to the region of uh, 16 and starting with verse 13, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked the disciples, who do people say that, that the son of man is? Well, They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or maybe one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said this, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied and says this, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. 
You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. So Jesus is having this conversation. He said, well, who, who do people say that I am? And, and, and well, these people say this and these people say this. But Peter says, but Jesus goes further. Who do you say that I am? See, this is an important moment here because Jesus is getting ready to make this kind of proclamation about building his church. And, and, it, and first and foremost, it comes from a question that he's posed to his disciples. And the first is, well, who do people say that I am? But then who do you say that I am? See, it doesn't matter what I say about Jesus. It doesn't matter what your mama says about Jesus. It doesn't matter what your best friend says about Jesus. It doesn't matter what all of the, the matter what Jesus is saying. Well, who do you say that I am? See, it, it can't just be Christ to your mama. It just can't be Christ to your pastor. He just can't be Christ to the friend or the neighbor down the street and all of these people. He has to be Christ to you. Christ to you, you have to know Jesus for yourself. And he's, he's saying this, and we're going to unpack this for a little bit. He says this. He starts off and he says, Simon, son of John. So at first he calls him Simon. He says, Simon, the Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from anybody else. But now I say to you, and now he calls him Peter. So he's gone from being Simon to being Peter. And he says, upon this, I'm going to build my church. Now, this word... Um, Simon here, and his Greek name means this, he has heard. He has heard. And that's what basically his life has been up to this point. I've heard lots about the coming of Christ. I've heard lots of things. But now all of a sudden there's this moment where he says, now it's, not, it's gone just beyond my hearing to now I know this. And Christ is saying, yes, you are Peter. And now this word in the Greek means rock. So you've gone from, well, just hearing about it to now, you know it. There's something solid about what you know. You have heard, and now you know. There's this confession that you've made. And this is the first moment he says this. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell cannot conquer against it. Okay, some people look at this and say, well, it seems like he's kind of referring to Peter as being this rock. As Peter is the rock and he's going to build the church upon it. But that's not what he's saying here. Because to get a really good look at this, we have to look at this particular part of Scripture in the original language. And that's knowing what these words mean in the Greek. And so Peter, his name being rock, translates this. It actually translates to the word Petros. Now this would be... Um, not so much rock in the sense that maybe some of you are thinking. This would be rock in the sense of this would be one that would be along the side of the road, a handful of rocks, uh, a stone. Um, actually, some even translate it as being pebbles. These are pebbles, rocks. It also comes with the word detached. So these are detached rocks. These are pebbles. This is uh, Petra. But then he says this, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, the word rock here is gone from being uh, Petros to being the word Petra. And this word Petra means rock as in boulder. This is the boulder. This is a solid. This is a foundational rock. This is a cornerstone that, as we just sung the song about a few minutes ago, there's a, a complete difference. So when he's looking at Peter, he's not saying, listen, that Peter, you are the rock. He's saying this confession that you just made, and the question was, 
who, who do you say that I am? And his confession is that you are Christ. You are the Lord. And upon this question is the rock in which the rock stands, that he's building, his rock, his boulder. And so it's this confession that Peter has given us saying, this is what the first step that your faith is built on, that you would know that he is the Christ. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Um, and, th- and this word, uh, Petra, this word rock means connected. It means to be a part of. It's the first step in this building process. Um, and, he, and this is important because when we look at the book of First and Second Peter, he's going to talk a lot about persecution. He's going to talk about things that are facing this church in uh, uh, these different regions. And he says this in First Peter and 6. It tells us that he's dealing with uh, persecution. So First uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So he's writing to people that are going through things. They're going through different persecutions. They're going through different trials. And, And it's important to know that Peter's saying, first and foremost, when it comes to dealing with persecution, you have got to have a solid foundation. And you have got to build your life on the rock. And that rock is Jesus Christ. And first and foremost, you have got to know it's not about what other people say about him. It's about what you say about him. Has he become Christ to you? Because some other people say, well, he's just Elijah. Well, he's just a great prophet. Well, he's just this or he's just that. But who do you say that I am? Is Christ Christ to you? Is Christ Christ to you? So he goes on and he says this. Uh, in one in verse 24, people are like grass. Their beauty is like the flower in the fields. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. There has to be some foundation to all of these things that we're getting ready to talk about. He goes on, he says this in, in, in chapter two, starting with verse four. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone. And so here is Peter giving this confession. Peter's confessing, Christ, he is the living cornerstone. He is the rock. He's the boulder. It's not me. I'm just the little pebble. Christ is the big one. My confession was the start of what Christ has set into motion. Christ alone, cornerstone. God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. That more, that what's more, you are his holy priest through the meditation, through the mediation, excuse me, of Jesus Christ. You offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you will trust him, recognize the honor God has given him for, but for those who reject him, There are these, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. Now, this word here, 
uh, cornerstone, we read it as one. In the Greek, this is actually two different words. The fir- first word means the head. It means uh, the head, the start, the, the Lord of. The second word, and, and I'm not going to try and give you these Greek words because for me to pronounce them, I would butcher them. And, uh, and you're not going to remember them anyway. And so you could look them up and, and find them. Uh, but the next word here um, means the corner. So the head of the corner. And that's where we get this word cornerstone. But it also has this meaning too. It also means the Lord. It also means the secret place. The Lord, the secret place. And so when we read the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected. So there, there would be all of these stones. The, and say you're, you're building this, this, whatever you're building. And there'd be a part where two walls would come and they would intersect. And when these two walls intersect, there would be a stone at the bottom of these two walls. And that's the stone that's going to carry and hold the weight of these two walls coming together. And it would be the head. It would be the chief stone. And, but here we find about Christ. They're saying, listen, Christ is the stone, but others have rejected him. They reject him and say, well, no, we want other things that we want to hold and place our foundation on. And this is important because the foundation stone is rarely praised. You know, you you never walk up to a a house or a building and look and say, man, look at that foundation. That foundation's awesome. That concrete was just poured so smooth. I mean, we'd have to dig underneath and look down into the ground to see just everything that's holding up this house. But it's easy to kind of look at the house and say, oh, wow. Man, this thing is beauty. It's uh, the, the architect that went into this. And, and, and wow. But it's very easy to overlook the foundation. And Christ is saying, listen, he is this foundation. He is this cornerstone that holds it all together. The piece that matters the most has been rejected by the builders. It's the same thing that we do today. It's so easy to reject Christ because it's so easy to put other things as our foundation. It's so easy to say, well, um, I'm going to put the amount of money I have in my bank account. Or I'm going to put my, my knowledge and my education. Or I'm going to put uh, my job. Or I'm going to put whatever it is. It's so easy to say, well, these are the things I fall back on. These are the things I rely upon. And these are good foundations. These are the things that the world teaches. This is how you build a strong life. Is, is you get smarter and you make more money or you do these things or you get stronger and you're not reliant upon anything else. And Christ is saying, those kinds of foundations, those are sinking sand. And, and there's another kind of foundation that I have, but these builders have rejected it. It's easy to reject it. Christ alone cornerstone just like the song that we say saying now hold on to that we're going to get back to that in a second um first peter 2 and verse 11 dear friends i warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul in other words it's very easy to make other things to try to be your foundation and you need to remember that you are but temporary residents here. Some even translations say you are but aliens in this land. In other words, there is something more beyond this. 
the flower fades, all of this happens. But if you have this sure foundation in Jesus Christ, that's what really matters. That's what's going to go on forever. And so there's a reminder to these people that are facing persecution that what you're going through is but for a time. Now, as we're going through those things, it could feel like an eternity. Uh, there's none of us in here that like to, man, I, I just really love going through really hard things. I love the fact that, you know, my house burnt down the other day. Love the fact that my bank account says zero. Love the fact that all of these, no, we go through these things. But Peter's reminding us, listen, no matter what you're going through. And, and remember, this is from someone that they're facing persecution by death. <laughs> I mean, he's getting crucified upside down. Um, not to kind of compare that with our problems, but there's probably nobody in here that's going to get crucified upside down. He's saying, listen, but even with all that we're going through, remember this is but temporary and there's something more. There's something better, no matter how hard it seems like. And then for the rest of the book, he begins to deal with issues on authority begins to talk about di- issues on authority. And, and, and we'll, we'll see throughout the rest of the book, he, he talks about th- things with human authority, dealing with kings, uh, dealing with government, dealing with bosses, uh, uh, wives and husbands, all of these different things. And he, and he talks about how we relate to authority. And, and in, in some of these cases, remember, he's talking about authority in which are directly persecuting him and the church. By under threat of death. Chapter 4 and verse 1. And so then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. And that's a hard one to, to read. I kind of wish that one wasn't in the Bible, to be honest with you, you know. Who, who likes that one? Hey, what's your favorite verse? Well, man, that's a hard one. Christ suffered. And so we ourselves must have the same attitude that he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have, and, and this is a key one here, and it's not just suffering for the sake of suffering, but listen to this. For if you have suffered physically, he's very, very, you know, he's pointing out that this is a physical suffering. If you have physically suffered for Christ, you have finished with sin. You don't spend the rest of your life chasing after your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You have had enough with the past of these evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their their feasting and drunkenness and the wild parties and and their worship of idols. They say, like, this is the outcome of experiencing in your physical body persecution for the sake of of Christ. He's saying all these other things that you used to distract us, they don't even play a part anymore. Let let me put this in, in kind of modern terms. Uh, if you've ever met someone, uh, cause we're not very familiar with this here in America when it comes to the idea of pain and persecution, our idea of persecution is, well, as a Christian, uh, somebody laughed at me, somebody poked fun of me. Um, someone wrote a blog about me, Someone, uh, I got skipped over for the promotion because of my faith. Um, these are the types of persecution primarily that we face sometimes. Um, now you go over to Iraq, Afghanistan, some places in China, 
Um, and people are walking around and they're missing arms. And uh, their kids have been taken from them. And family members have been murdered for the sake of Christ. Now you talk to these guys. And there's something about their faith. That you know that no matter what happens to them from this point out. I mean that every doctor report can come back that you've got cancer. It's stage four. You've got two days to live. You've got all of these things. happening. There's something about these people that say, you know what? Christ is in control. And they're not giving up on their faith easily. Because they have felt persecution and pain in their body and they have fought for it for the sake of Christ. And they say, listen, it's going to take a whole lot. And as a matter of fact, it's going to take more than you have to offer to move me and my faith in Christ. You know why? Because I have suffered for it. And see, we love things the easy way. And when things come easy, we're just kind of, well, I don't need that anymore. You know, have you ever had those things where, you know, maybe someone's uh, giving you something and you're kind of like, well, it was a gift. Mm, it's okay that I lost it. No big deal. But then have you ever, you know, wanted something really bad? If, for example, I'm maybe eight years old, somewhere around there. And back then the Sonic 6 bicycle came out. The Sonic 6 bicycle was the bicycle of all bicycles. I mean, it had the racing stripes on the front. It even had like this gear shifter, like a real car. And I just, I want this bicycle. And it's like 150 bucks or something. And back then, 150 bucks, is, that's a lot of money for a bicycle. That's kind of the norm now. But back then, that was like twice the price of the normal bicycle. So I had to work for this thing. I was mowing grasses. I was doing all these things. I loved this bicycle. Then that thing got stolen. I was so mad. I was so mad. You know, but if somebody would have just given me the bicycle, well, you know, but I was, I was even more mad because it wasn't just the bicycle. It was the fact that I mowed a hundred yards for this bicycle. Well, not a hundred. I think I wasn't that cheap, but, uh, you know, you can, I'd mow your yard for maybe five, 10 bucks back then. Nowadays, no, but, uh, it was the fact that I did all this work for this thing and somebody stole it and you got it and you didn't have to work for it. And there's something about our faith. When we go through things and when our faith makes it through, um, you know, there's a gentleman in our church now that uh, years ago he was in this terrible car accident. And uh, I remember just having this conversation with him and he was talking about standing in the, the line, these long lines at the grocery store. And he just said, man, I'm just glad to be in the line because he's been through it. He went through and thought, I'm going to die through this. And he could talk to Chris, the stage four cancer. And man, I'm just, just glad to have some breath in my lungs today. And there's something about when we, we face some persecution for the gospel. Um, back in, I don't know, quite a few years ago, I was in East Timor. And this is shortly after the, the civil war there. And maybe, maybe a year after. And I go in and I'm... I'm there. I'm with the United Nations. I'm actually, we're under protective guard, so there's guys with guns all over the place. And we're just looking in the, at the civil war that's happened in this place. And there was a lot of fighting against Christians, a lot of persecution. And so we'd go in, and I'm going to go preach to this one village. And this village has been burnt down. I mean, there's pieces of houses left. And so we go get to this one house, and there's literally like just a corner of the wall. And that's it. And everything else is burnt down. And so I, I'm kind of preaching 
from this burnt down house. And this one corner, it's funny because everything's open. There's this one corner and there's two little windows and there's kids in the windows. And it's kind of like, dude, it's all open here. You don't have to get in the window. But they, they did anyway. And so there's tons of people and we're preaching the gospel. And primarily the people that are listening at this point are Christians. And they've been through persecution. And I got finished preaching and I just thought to myself, wow, like I shouldn't even be preaching here. Like you guys need to be preaching to me. Like I need what you guys have. Because after that, because over there I actually preached first and then we did some worship. And and this guy got up there with this guitar and this kind of makeshift drum. And it sounded terrible. But the worship was the most powerful worship I've ever experienced in my, my entire life. This group of people that had been through it, had faced, I mean, I can't even tell you some of the things that some of these people had been through. And they're they're just there and they're just worshiping God, saying, God, you're worth it all. And and when Peter's saying, he's writing this letter to the church that's going through persecution. And he's saying, listen, there's something about it. Don't let it get you down. No matter what it is you're going through. Because when you have suffered this For the sake of Christ, it's going to put to rest in your life those things that easily trip you up. See, right now, I guarantee you, within most of us in this church, there's those things that we think, man, they just easily trip us up. Man, I just keep, God, I don't want to do this, but I keep. But I tell you, when the day comes, and again, uh, this isn't a doom and gloom, but if the day ever comes when persecution really hits America, it will not destroy the church. It might destroy the buildings. It might destroy our ability to kind of meet the way we are doing now. But if anything, it will awaken the church. It will awaken Christians to say, you know what? It's more than this. And I'm not giving up on my faith. And all of these things that used to easily trip me up, it's nothing now. For the sake of Christ. And we can look in the scriptures and we can see this pattern over and over with the people of God where they'll go through blessings and they'll, they'll, they'll kind of get things and then they'll just easily fall away and then something happens, but then it brings them back to God. And it brings them back to God. And, and oftentimes it's, it's dealing with this persecution. So First Peter is really dealing a lot with how people are being persecuted and how to relate to that authority. And often that authority is directly against the word of God. Now, second Peter, a little bit different because he's still talking about a church that is facing persecution, but here he focuses on something that we are familiar with. So second Peter chapter two, verse one, but there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will be cleverly teaching you destructive heresies and even deny the master who brought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teachings and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. Now, quick pause on that, where it says the way of truth will be slandered. What he's speaking here of, now, if you were a Christian back and then, you wouldn't be called a Christian. You would be called a follower of the way. 
That's what people that were following Jesus, and they really got that from where, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so are you, how we would say, well, are you a Christian? People would say, are you a follower of the way? And so when it says, many will follow their evil teachers and shameful immorality, because of these, just, the way of truth will be slandered. The church will be slandered because of these teachings. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. But God condemn them long ago and the destruction will not be delayed. And so here Peter is dealing with not just the persecution that you're facing from outside sources uh, in different, different areas, but here he's talking about persecution from within those that are your teachers, those that are your pastors and preachers and, and those that are supposed to lead you and guide you and show you in the way of Jesus Christ. Now this is something that we are familiar with. And so I want to take a second here, and I want to look back a little bit on how Jesus deals with some of these uh, people that are false prophets, false teachers. Uh, The book of Luke, chapter 20. So Jesus is teaching, and he's preaching the good news in the temple. And now this, this, this establishes the audience. The lead priest, the teachers of the religious law, and the elders. Okay, so this is established. These things, this is what get, gets ready to take place after this is this conversation that's primarily Jesus is having with the leaders of the day. It could easily read the, the leading priests, the teachers, the religious leaders, the elders. These are the, the pastors, the teachers, the, the ones that people are listening to. Now they came up to him and they demanded, by what authority are you doing all of these things? Who gave you the right? Jesus says this, well, let me ask you this question. First, does John authority, authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Now, they get a little huddle and they talk it among themselves. And they say, well, if we say it was from heaven, he will ask us, well, why didn't we believe John? But if we say it was merely human, the people, they will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they finally replied and they said, well, we don't know. And to which Jesus says, well, If you won't tell by what authority I do these things, I won't tell you either. Now, here's this kind of first rule of knowing whether or not you're a Pharisee. Knowing whether or not you are a false prophet and you're teaching people the wrong way. Jesus has asked them a question. They know the answer, but they look at both sides of this. Well, if we say this, these are the consequences. And and see, they're trying to fit the truth into what best suits them. Everything revolves around, well, well, what can make me happy? What can get more money in my pockets? What can get me more praise among these people? And therefore, if I don't agree with it, well, I'm not going to give you the answer to that, even though we know it to be true. Because on this hand, they're saying, well, if we say it's Jesus, then we have to affirm what John said. And what John says is that he is the Christ. Or what if we say that John's authority was merely me, we're going to get persecuted by all these people. And so either way, we're going to lose. And so... Mm, we don't know. And so Jesus goes on and he tells this story. He begins to tell this parable. Now, a parable means this. A parable means to come alongside. So this story that Jesus is telling is going to come alongside this conversation that he is having with this group of religious leaders. Now, Jesus turned to the people again and told them this story. A man planted a vineyard. He leased it to the tenant farmers and moved to another country and lived for several years. 
Now, at the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect the share of the crops. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. empty-handed. And so the, other, so the owner sent another servant. But they also insulted him. They beat him up and sent him away empty-handed. The third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. And he thought to himself this, what will I do? He said, I know. I'll send my cherished my cherished son, surely they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. Because again, they're all about themselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and they murdered him. Jesus says this. So do you suppose that the owner of the vineyard will do to them? Jesus asked. I'll tell you. He will come and he will kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. All right. These are the words of Jesus. He's speaking to religious leaders that are leading his people and people that are coming to know Christ in the wrong way. And what does Jesus say? He's going to kill those farmers. Okay. There's no kind of like, there's no... Other interpretation, we can't look back into the Greek and say, oh, well, what Jesus meant to say is he's really going to take them by the hand and he's going to have a good conversation with them and he's going to deal with these. No, no, no. Let me assure you, this word means Jesus is going to take care of business with these guys. Jesus ain't playing because when it comes to teaching and leading people in his way, it ain't no joke. I mean, later on, we'll read in the scriptures, listen, don't many of you be teachers because there's a harder judgment. Because you're teaching people and you're leading them down the path. What I'm doing right now, I am going to be responsible to God for. He's teaching. And if I'm teaching some ways, some crazy, whacked out heresy stuff, stuff that these guys were teaching, why? Because their motives were, well, what's in it for us? Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to take care of these guys. I'm going to kill them and I'm going to lease their land to someone else. Now, I love the fact that it says that the land is leased. So whether it's a good, a good farmer or a bad farmer, there's this realization that everything in your life is on loan. You are just a steward. Everything. Your wife, your husband, your kids, your house, your car. None of it's yours. You're just a steward. It's on lease. And what you do with those things is up to you. God's entrusted them. And if you're taking them down this path, God's saying, listen, we're going to drag them out and kill them. Now, here is where it gets really funny. Jesus looked at them and said, said or they said this. Now, how t- this is the response of the leaders to Jesus. How terrible that such a thing could ever happen. They're not getting the point of the story. Oh, oh how this would ever happen. And so Jesus says this. Jesus looked at them and said, well, then what does it mean when the scripture says the stone that the builders rejected has now come the chief cornerstone? At which point they're kind of like, oh, wait a minute. We're starting to get it. Then it says this. Uh, Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and I will crush anyone who falls on it. Like hard language Jesus is using with them. There's, there's death and there's, there's stones and there's crushing and there's pieces and And then it says this, and the teachers of the religious law and the leading priests, they wanted to arrest Jesus immediately. Why? Because they realized the story was about them. Oh, wait a second. You're talking about me. I'm the wicked farmer. 
I mean, could you imagine being there in that moment where Jesus is telling the story? Oh, they, they would never do such a thing. Shame on them. Oh, wait a minute. That's me. There's this moment where, oh, man. Have you ever had that moment? Have you ever been in that group of people where somebody tells a joke and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait a minute, I do that. Like, oh. And then you try to like go along with a joke. Actually, we had a moment this last week. The guys are camping and barbecuing. And, and Kyle says, hey, this week I'm going to play Open the Eyes of My Heart. I'm like, nah, you're not going to play that song. That song's so old. Like, oh, wait a minute, he's serious. <laughs> oh, dude, no, I'm sorry, play, play the song. No, man, I never realized, oh, that was... Foot in the mouth. That's why I like Peter. And, uh, but you know, they're listening to this. Every, everything's on these. The Pharisees, re, they realize that he's about them. But this is what's amazing what Jesus quotes here. The stone that the builders rejected. He's saying, listen, you guys have rejected me. Y'all have rejected the truth and searched for whatever fits your theology about what best benefits you. And in doing so, this the stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. Jesus isn't quoting Peter here. This is written later. Peter is quoting Jesus, but Jesus is quoting here a psalm. And so I want to take you back to Psalm 118. That Jesus is telling this group of people. He's quoting Psalm 118, and he says this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let of all Israel people... Israel, repeat this. His faithful love endures forever. Let Aaron's descendants, the priests, repeat. His faithful love endures forever. Let all who feel the Lord repeat. His faithful love endures forever. So it would be this kind of, this psalm that um, we're not told that it's wrote by David, but more than likely this psalm was written by David, and I'll show you why in a second here. Um, But this would be a psalm that would be written right after uh, they had gone into battle and God has come thrown come through, shown the victory for him. And, and they're getting in front of the congregation and they're saying, listen, give praise to the God. And they say, first of all, let Israel repeat this. His love endures forever. So let's try it one, one time. This side of the room, when I say give praise to God, you're going to say his love endures forever. All right. So give praise to God. Okay, so this is Israel. And so this is the Levites. And these are the people that are serving inside of the temple. And these are the people that are are leading the rest of the children of Israel in the ways of God. And so he's saying, listen, you people, whenever I say this, y'all are going to say his love endures forever. And so God is good. And so you people, these are all the ones he says now, um, those who fear the Lord, repeat this. God's faithfulness and his and so everybody, his, and so there's this kind of unity that they're bringing among the people with this psalm that's being sung after God has come through, that his love endures forever and the people, and this is becoming the shout and this is becoming the cry of an entire people group. And we look and we see in verse 22, it says this, the stone that the builders rejected has now come the chief cornerstone. Now David's writing this because David is face rejected. Rejection. He's faced all these things, and and and, and Israel's faced all this re- rejection. And he's writing this, and, and it's kind of a two-part thing. It's almost a prophetic word of things to come, but it's also very much the reality of what they have faced, because they've been rejected, and now all of a sudden God has come through. And at the end of the psalm, it says it again: "Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good; His love endures forever. His love endures forever." Hold with me. This is all going to connect in a second. Um, I'm not going to read it, but if we were to look over in Ezra, time has gone by. The temple has been built. 
temple has been destroyed. And now the Bible says in Ezra 3 and 4 that a remnant of God's people are coming back. And they look and there's the, the, the temple is in ruins. And, and they've been scattered all abroad. They're coming back and they're going to rebuild the temple. And so they, they kind of get to work. And, and in Ezra, they begin to sing this song. And we're going to sing this song that, David, that his love endures forever. And, and they begin to rebuild the foundation. Now, upon doing so, they build it. And the Bible says this, that some looked upon it and some were just praising and saying, oh, God, this wonderful thing that you've done. But then it said there were those that had seen the temple before and they were in tears. And so there's this kind of cry of the people that some are just, wow, we've come back from exile. We're doing all these things. The temple is being built. And there's one that are just praising God. And then there's others that are in tears because they remember how the temple used to be. And they're saying, listen, if you're looking at this foundation, this little bit that y'all build, y'all should have seen what Solomon did. Y'all should have seen the temple before. And see, they're kind of, kind of stuck there. And, they, and the appearance of what they're seeing now isn't what they expected. So while they should be praising, they're crying because it looks like rubbish. Because it looks like rubbish. Quick story. Um, there was an experiment that went on in Washington, D.C. And this man, uh, Josh Bell, if you don't know who Josh Bell is, he is uh, one of the world's greatest violin players. And he goes into D.C. train station. He is playing a Stradivarius violin. And the violin that he's playing is worth $4 million. One of the best musicians in the world. The night before playing in this train station, he had just played a concert in which the uh, cheapest seat you could buy was $100 a seat. And the entire thing was sold out. So he goes into this train station. He plays for 45 minutes. Over 1,100 people pass through that train station. 32 people. No, excuse me. Uh, let me get the number right. Um, seven people stopped. 1,100 people passed by. And only one knew who he was. After 45 minutes, he had made $32. And 20 of those $32 came from the one person who knew who he was. And the experiment was just to show how the context. On one night, he's on stage, and he's sold out. And there's, there's people have spent thousands and thousands of dollars. And the other stage is, well, it's a train station, and people are busy. And only seven people stopped. And, and here's what's, what's famous about this. As you look, and, and it's on YouTube, and you can look at And then you can begin to read some of the comments below. And some people have put these comments of, well, he was playing during rush hour. People have to get to work. What do you expect? Of course, only seven people stopped. And to which you want to reply, that's the point of the experiment. Of course, everybody's busy. Life is busy. But if you are so busy that you can't stop, to hear one of the world's greatest musicians playing one of the most expensive instruments. And the music that he was playing was some of the hardest music to play. If you're so busy that you can't pause for a moment, you are missing all of the beauty that is around you. How often 
do we just look at the shambles and we look at the ruins and we, well, well, we're just so busy that we miss what God is doing. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. Because you know why? Because it didn't look exactly like everyone thought it would look. People were expecting Jesus to come in a certain way. And you know what? He came as a baby in a manger. And he came from a family that, well, we didn't expect this from this family. And he came from this town where we didn't expect people to come from this town. And all of the things, the context in which Christ works are often the farthest context in which we want to see him. Sometimes we think that only Christ is at church or, or in different, in different contexts. And Christ is saying, I'm in the subway station and I'm doing these beautiful things. And if you don't slow down, you're going to miss it. As a matter of fact, are there any kind of stones in your life that you've rejected because, well, you're looking in the wrong place? The world teaches us to rely on other things. And Christ is saying, him alone, cornerstone, beauty rises, an unexpected place. David is saying in the psalm, listen, in the midst of this battle, God, your glove endures forever. The people are coming back from exile and saying, listen, even though this foundation looks like it's in ruins, Lord God, your love endures forever. Jesus goes to the cross and even for the outside, it looks like he's a complete failure. But yet there is beautiful, beautiful resurrection and success in the cross. And that's why you can say the joy that was set before me. This Petra, this stone. And Peter is saying, listen, church. When you go through dark times, when you go through hard circumstances, we all will. You've got to have a rock. Because whether you realize it or not, you are building your life on something. And all these other rocks, all these other things that the world teaches us, it's vapor. And Ecclesiastes says, listen, it's, it's here today and it's, gone tomorrow and it's it's vapor but there's one there's a cornerstone and it doesn't look the way you expect and if you're moving too fast you're going to miss it and the word i have for y'all this morning is that i i know without a shadow of a doubt that there's some beauty in each one of your lives that you're missing There's some violin players that you're walking right by. There's some beauty in this world that's right in front of your face. Jesus is saying, just slow down long enough to see it. Because no matter what you're going through, no matter if you're feeling pain in your body right now, no matter if your marriage is on the, the breaks, no matter what you're going through, there's a rock. It's Jesus Christ, and he's going to get you through the tough times. He's going to get you through. He's going to get you through. He's going to get you through. So who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I know who your pastor says I am. I know who your family says I am. I know who your neighbors say that I am. But who do you say that I am? Who do you Say that I am. Let's pray.
Lord, this morning we just want to repent. Lord God, for if in in any way we've tried to build on a a different foundation, if in any any way we've rejected your gospel for the, the cheapness of the world, Lord God, we just want to repent this morning. We want to thank you that we could turn to you and you could be that stone, God, that no matter what goes on in our life, no matter what the doctor report says, no matter how dark it gets, you're right there. And we're reminded, just as Peter reminds us, that all of this is just temporary. And just while everyone's still in in prayer, just... Just hold with me for a moment. Please keep your eyes shut. I just feel like I, I want to remind you there's the, there's the story about whenever they're building the temple in First Kings and, and uh, Solomon is, he's got all these people to do the work and they would go to these rock quarries. And the Bible tells us in First uh, Kings 6 and 7 that all the rocks that were coming out of the quarry would have to be shaved there at the quarry. Because when they were, they were brought to the building site, there was to be no sound of any hammer that, the, that they would have to fit right into place. I just kind of feel like saying that God has been shaping your life. And you've been, you're being shaped in the quarry. And you don't quite understand how you fit in. You're not quite sure. It, it almost seems like, well, it doesn't work. It's almost like, well, the, so many people have rejected me. And God's saying, they rejected me too. And you may not see how you fit in right now. But when he places you, you are part of those rocks, just like Peter, that he is building on his rock. This has been a presentation of Coastal Vineyard Church, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information on who we are and how you can support future podcasts, visit us on the web at www.coastalvineyard.org. All who are weak, all who are weary, come to the to the fountain All who will sail The rivers of harvest Come to the sea Come on, be safe